Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we will be discussing two weeks worth of Come Follow Me, covering Doctrine and Covenants, sections 111 through 120. Also, we are members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. If you haven't listened to Face in Hat, they're connected to the Dialogue Podcast Network. One of their most recent episodes they posted, it is actually episode one of their fourth season. It was posted on September 26th. It's called A Modern Miracle. Oh my gosh, it's so good. You have to listen to it. Creators of this podcast, they're members of the church, and one of them is a scientist. I don't know his official title, but he like breaks down the history of vaccines and inoculations Ooh. and uh, talks about like the significance of how we received the COVID vaccine and how it was like 40 years in the making, even though like it came around really quickly. It's really, really fascinating. And they even share the story of like how inoculations started in the United States from an enslaved person. Oh, wow. In the history books we have that his name is Onis, Onisimus, but that was the name given to him by his slaveholder, and there's no record of his actual name, unfortunately. But he's the one that gave information to his slaveholder about how to inoculate against smallpox, and that's what started the United States in inoculations, which led us to be able to develop vaccinations. Anyway, they share a ton of information in this and it's super informative and they're speaking from a professional standpoint. Mm -hmm. The COVID vaccine is a modern miracle and they describe why really well in this episode. That's awesome. Yes, it is. More information can be found about the network at dialoguejournal.com. So summary, section 111 is revelation given when the church was in debt. It talked about how the Lord will provide for his servants temporarily. 112 is revelation given on a day missionaries started teaching in England in 1837 about missionary work, baptism, and keys. 113 is answers to questions in Isaiah. 114 is revelation given to say people will replace those who are removed from their callings. 115, the Lord names the church and exclaims that the temple will be built in far west. 116 says that Spring Hill is named Adam on Diamond. And then 117 is revelation given to three men to not covet and about sacred sacrifice. 118 is revelation given about the 12 apostles. And then 119 and 120 is revelation given to establish the law of tithing as one-tenth of income. And then all these sections are given during the time that the saints are driven out of Kirtland, Ohio and Independence. I thought it was interesting how in section 111, in verse 
In verse 11, <laughs> 1, 11, 11, that's funny magic numbers. Anyway, <laughs> it says to be as wise as serpents and yet without sin. I was like, ah, Katie, look, serpents aren't always metaphors for Satan. <laughs> yeah, I totally saw that and thought that was super interesting too. Yeah, that's like my only commentary for one eleven. Verse 9, I thought was interesting. This is speaking to Joseph Smith when they traveled to Salem, Massachusetts. It says, This place you may obtain by hire and inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants and founders of this city. Mm. So it's talking about how Joseph will find success in this city. They went to try to settle some debts. They thought that there would be money for them there. And they ended up teaching the church there. And it was more of a spiritual mission, it turned out, than temporal. But when I read this verse, I was like, is the Lord telling Joseph to like find indigenous people or Native Americans to like learn about the land? It says ancient inhabitants and the founders of this city. And I researched it a little bit and Revelations in Context talks about it. It says, quote, some people have assumed that the trip to Salem was Simply not a success. Others have speculated that perhaps the Revelation's instruction to inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants of the city, which included some of Joseph's ancestors, might have helped prepare him to receive vital revelations on proxy work for the dead. But the historical record reveals nothing about what Joseph, Oliver, Sidney, and Hiram felt about the revelation when they left Salem. So there's no concrete evidence on what this verse specifically means, but I thought it was really cool that it pointed Joseph to his ancestors when he went to this random city. That is interesting. I also feel like it's important to point out the fingerprints of whiteness on Mm. how this is written in our history books when the revelation says to inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants of the city. And then the way that's translated in history is, oh, it pointed Joseph to his white ancestors, obviously the ancient inhabitants of any city in the United States is going to be indigenous people. And this interpretation just totally ignores that. And I feel like there should be some kind of statement in there clarifying what is actually meant by this while recognizing like whose land it is who the actual ancient inhabitants of the city are, which in Salem, where this revelation speaks of, it's the Namkiag tribe. Okay. one twelve. Yeah. So my biggest thing here was Thomas Marsh. We did talk about him briefly before. Oh, and I actually put a search function on our website when I was doing this. (laughs) So I was like, awesome. Thomas oh Marsh, my gosh. how do I oh, know him? Cool. And so it was from episode 17, Jesus Christ Cares About the Consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned him briefly. Anyway, so Thomas Marsh, he's one of those people where I'm like, okay, he's being criticized in the scriptures. Let's find out more about him. See if he's neurodivergent or disabled, right? Mm-hmm. And Apparently, there's this very, like, famous story of him with his wife, the cream strippings incident, which took place in August or September 1838 in Far West, Missouri. And so this is from DoctrineCovenantCentral.org. And if you look him up, like, on the church website, it all shares the same story, which is that 
Marsha's wife, Elizabeth, got into this controversy with Lucinda Harris, not Lucy Harris, Lucinda Harris, the wife of George W. Harris. The two women had an agreement to share milk from their cows for making cheese. Lucinda accused Elizabeth Marsh of keeping the cream strippings considered the best part of the milk for herself. The argument was mediated by a series of church officials, with Marsh even appealing to the First Presidency, who sustained earlier rulings that Elizabeth was in the wrong. Thomas Marsh was so infuriated that he was said to have stated, quote, that he would sustain the character of his wife even if he had to go to hell for it. <laughs> wow. That's loyalty. Oh, my gosh. This is like the one thing that I remember learning during the Doctor and Covenant's year in San Bernardino really? for some reason. Yes. I remember it being taught, like, how could someone let something so insignificant, mm-hmm. like, interfere with their salvation and their membership yep. in the church? And, like, that's such a criticism of neurodivergency. Like, something that's seemingly insignificant True. to one person can be a big deal to someone. And obviously yeah. it was a really big deal to their family. That's a perfect example of how this story has, like, been passed down over the years. Mm -hmm. So this page that I read from Doctrine and Covenant Central said, Though Marsh's apostasy is more complicated than the result of this one situation, his pride is evident in the statements connected to this well-known story. And then Elder Bednar from the Quorum of the Twelve in 2006 repeated the whole milk and stripping story. He contrasted Marsh's faithlessness with the devotion of Brigham Young, saying, quote, In many instances, choosing to be offended is a symptom of a much deeper and more serious spiritual malady. Thomas B. Marsh allowed himself to be acted upon, and the eventual results were apostasy and misery. Brigham Young was an agent who exercised his agency and acted in accordance with correct principles, and he became a mighty instrument in the hands of the Lord. And for context, Thomas B. Marsh was like the head of the Quorum of the Twelve back then, and if he hadn't apostatized, then he would have succeeded Joseph Smith as the prophet the way Brigham Young did. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's why this is like such a big deal. But that story that we've been told is not actually why he apostatized. (gasps) Okay, keep talking. Wikipedia, and I know we're not supposed to use sources from Wikipedia, but actually this Wikipedia article had a lot of sources and a lot of footnotes. But anyway, I'm just going to read this part. Although disfellowshipped, David Whitmer, John Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, W.W. Phelps, and other former leaders who were known as the, quote, dissenters continued to live in the county where they were living back then. According to Reed Peck, so this is not even Thomas B. Marsh, this is someone else's account, two Danites... Wait a second, let me give you the description of what a Dana is. Some of the Latter-day Saints, led by Samson Avard, formed a society which came to be known as the Danites. According to Marsh, these men swore oaths to support the heads of the church in all things that they say or do, whether right or wrong. Wow. Two of the Danites, Jared Carter and Dimmick B. Huntington, proposed at a meeting that society should kill the dissenters. Oh, my gosh. And note that this is Reed Peck, not Thomas B. Marsh, who is writing this down. Marsh and fellow moderate John Corll spoke vigorously against the motion, which, good for you. (laughs) However, on the following Sunday, Sidney Rigdon issued his, quote, salt sermon, in which he likened the dissenters to salt that had lost its savor and was good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. So Sidney Rigdon gave this talk right after these two other dudes were like, we should kill everybody who left the church or who disagrees with this. 
Within a week, the dissenters had fled the county. On October 18th, so this is still 1838, I believe, a group of Mormons entered Davies County and engaged in the looting and burning of non-Mormon settlements, including Gallatin. Marsh stated, A company of about 80 of the Mormons, commanded by a man fictitiously named Captain Fearnett, so his real name was David W. Patton, they returned and said they had run off from Gallatin 20 or 30 men and had taken Gallatin, had taken one prisoner and another had joined the company. I afterwards learned from the Mormons that they had burned Gallatin and it was done by the aforesaid company that marched there. The Mormons informed me that they had hauled away all the goods from the store in Gallatin and deposited them at the bishop's storehouse at Adam on Diamond. Oh my gosh. Yeah. On October 19th, 1838, the day after Gallatin was burned, Marsh and fellow apostle Orson Hyde, so Orson Hyde and Thomas B. Marsh, left the association of the church. Well, gee, hmm, what could shake your faith? Marsh drafted and signed a legal affidavit against Joseph Smith on October 24th of 1838, which Orson Hyde also signed. In this document, he like wrote down all of like these violent things that were going on. And Joseph Smith, like, reputed it, said that it was full of lies and whatever. But basically, that document was, like, a key document which led to the expulsion of the members of the church from Missouri. Oh, my gosh. So this whole, like, oh, yeah, it just, it's it's basically, he was just prideful with, like, his wife and, like, the milk. Um, And it's it might be a little bit more complicated than that, but that's basically it. It's, like, such a lie. (laughs) And people saying... Oh, the saints were getting attacked just for their beliefs and they were just trying to do the right thing and follow God. Like there were some rogue saints Mm -hmm. who, I mean, leadership rogue saints who were doing terrible things. Also, I have to toss in here how interesting it is that our history in the church involves looting. (laughs) Anyway, to close out the story of Thomas B. Marsh, he left the church then, and then he actually eventually came back to the church. He came to Salt Lake City in September 1857. Brigham Young allowed him to address the saints, but he, like, explained his apostasy and asked for forgiveness. He said, I have frequently wanted to know how my apostasy began, and I've come to the conclusion that I must have lost the spirit of the Lord out of my heart. I became jealous of the prophet, and then I saw double, and overlooked everything that was right, and spent all my time in looking for the evil. And then when the devil began to lead me, it was easy for the carnal mind to rise up, which is anger, jealousy, and wrath. I could feel it within me. I felt angry and wrathful, and the spirit of the Lord being gone, as the scriptures say, I was blinded. I got mad, and I wanted everybody else to be mad. (sighs) It almost disappoints me that he came back to the church and made that statement, because he's gaslighting himself. You know what I mean? Like he was there. He was there when these things were happening, when Danites were making threats and doing violent actions against dissenters of the church, against people who might've been neurodivergent or point is dissent is always cue for that. And he defended them back then. And now he is saying, oh, I just went crazy. The devil made me crazy. He said, I got mad. And he said, I saw double, like Mm -hmm. the whole carnal mind, which is anger, jealousy, and wrath. Like everybody feels those emotions. That's not like an evil thing. Those emotions are not from the devil. That's like an ableist notion in and of itself. Like those emotions are human emotions. It also just feels like almost a betrayal of the people that he was defending back then. And it makes me think about like how easily allies of a marginalized group Mm. can be shamed, you know, and then be like, oh, actually, I was wrong. 
I was like over emotional, I overreacted or shamed back into like the status quo, which is white ableism, patriarchy. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah, that is a really good reading. That is definitely a, a place of privilege where he could just turn around and forget that when other people who yeah. were affected by this violence, it said that people were driven out of their city out of fear. And a whole city like burned down. Yeah. yeah. Section 113, unless you have anything else for 112. I thought verse 8 was really interesting. It says, And by thy word, many high ones shall be brought low, and by thy mm. word, many low ones shall be exalted. I thought that was really, really cool when you read it with a justice lens for yeah, marginalized people. Definitely. Also, verse 29, it's a pretty binary verse, but there's accommodations that aren't mentioned. So verse 29 says, And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. Very binary. You're either mm -hmm. A or B. Latter-day Revelation gives more context to this verse for people that are outside of this binary mm -hmm. because we have baptisms in the temple. We have ability to learn and grow and chains and choose in this life and in the afterlife. I love that. That's what Blair Osler would call the queering of the gospel. Yeah. Okay, 113. Yes. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I read the scriptures and I'm just like, mm, sassy remark, and then I just kind of move on. <laughs> this is my one sassy remark. Do it. 113 verse 8. I thought it was really interesting that... Zion is given female pronouns, mm. and then it talks about the priesthood in Zion. <laughs> it says, Who should hold the power of priesthood to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel and to put on her strength, talking about Zion, to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, and also to return to that power which she had lost. I just thought that was beautiful language and... There's pros and cons on mm -hmm. personifying Zion, but this is definitely a really good section where she is personified beautifully. <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes me like, oh, she puts on the authority of the priesthood. Um, that means women are getting the priesthood, right? And other genders that are not male or female? Like, anyway, yeah. I feel like that verse, you could use that in like uh, an ordained women uh, context, which yeah, I think it'd be yeah. cool. But I thought that was really cool too. Yeah. What else? My thing was so in verses nine through ten, it talks about the bands of the neck being loosed from Zion. Yeah. And so that's in reference to Isaiah fifty-two verse two. Basically, the bands on the neck are just like symbols of chains and captivity and being a slave. But Isaiah 52 verse 2 says, Shake thyself from the dust, arise, and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So, like, at first glance, you're kind of like, okay, why are you standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down? Like, is this, like, a temple reference? <laughs> oh. You know what I mean? Or, like, yeah. and plus it's just, like, these verbs are, like, action verbs with the body, which I pay attention to. Apparently... This is from studylight.org, and I don't know, maybe Derek can confirm this, but this is like a Bible commentary site. Um, but basically, it's saying that 
The idea in Hebrew, which is not implied in the expression in English, is um, not to rise and sit down in the same place, but it means to rise from the dust and sit in a more elevated or honorable place. Because apparently back then, in that culture, they all sat on the ground, unless they were like the rulers or the authorities. And so Mm -hmm. Zion there is being represented as sitting on the earth, where her loose flowing robes would have been covered with dust. She's called on to arise from that humble condition and occupy the divan or a chair of dignity and honor. The following quotation from Jowett's Christian Researches will explain the custom which is here alluded to, quote, It is no uncommon thing to see an individual or group of persons, even when very well dressed, sitting with their feet drawn under them upon the bare earth, passing whole hours in idle conversation. Europeans would require a chair, but the natives here prefer the ground. As may naturally be expected with whatever care they may at first sitting down, choose their place, yet the flowing dress by degrees gathers up the dust. As this occurs, they from time to time arise, adjust themselves, literally shake off the dust and then sit down again. The captive daughter of Zion, therefore, brought down to the dust of suffering and oppression, is commanded to arise and shake herself from that dust and then with grace and dignity and composure and security to sit down, to take, as it were, again her seat and her rank amid the company of the nations of the earth, which had before afflicted her and trampled her to the earth. Which I thought was like really cool. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful language. It's really beautiful language. It's like... Not necessarily a Eurocentric standard, which I think is cool. And it's like, either way, you're sitting, which makes me happy because <laughs> I don't like standing up. Because like, I sit on the ground all the time when I, when I don't have a place to sit and I'm cataplexing. Wow. And it's like talking about being released from oppression and injustice mm-hmm. and taking your rightful place, which you've always like had the right to take. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of goes back to how important it is to have equality and equity because all of us have a rightful place on this earth and in this gospel. And when we falsely oppress people, we're taking people away from their rightful place. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, the only thing I had for section 114 is that It says, inasmuch as there are those among you who deny my name, others shall be planted in their stead and receive their bishopric, which is literally what happened with Thomas Marsh and Brigham Young. (laughs) Like Brigham Young replaced Thomas Marsh because Thomas Marsh left the church because of all these violent things that were happening um, perpetuated by members of the church back then. I feel like this section is kind of like tainted to me because of that. Like in the past, when I like believed in everything i would have been like oh this is cool nothing can stop the church you know what i mean like yeah it's just gonna keep going no matter who chooses to leave or who fights against it we're all in this together not one of us is more special than the other we can be replaced so it's like our duty to do our best and like give it our all Mm -hmm. so that's how i would have taken it way back then but now i'm like yeah, you're replacing someone who left because they had a really good reason to leave. And like, maybe you shouldn't just replace them and like carry on. Maybe you should examine what they were criticizing and like, see if it has any merit. Anyway, that's fair. Yeah, that's the only thing I had for there. And then yeah, 117. Look at us. We're just flying through these. Yay! I just thought it was interesting. Verses four through five, the Lord allegedly, because like 
I personally do not believe that God is speaking through Joseph Smith. That's my personal belief. But mm-hmm. anyway, the Lord is asking, what is property to me, right? Because he's trying to get William Marks and Newell K. Whitney to like leave their properties and then come to Missouri. Because after everybody left Ohio, they like stayed there a little bit longer because they had like successful businesses there. But like if property means nothing then who cares if the church has debt? It's very like selective about whose property matters and whose property doesn't. And it's like Hmm. the property that matters is the property that like belongs to the church and to Joseph Smith, but everybody else's property, it's selfish for them to want to hold on to it and their like material success. Hmm. I just disagree with that. Like, I don't think William Marks or Newell K. Whitney were disabled, but it just has a bad precedent that has led to just some really terrible attitudes about like giving everything to the church, which is simply not possible for disabled people, but also like disproportionately more damaging to disabled people than to able-bodied people. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's all I have to say about 117. <laughs> I did think that... In 117, verse 5 through 7, I thought that they were kind of cool. They were really earthy and like pro-conservation, stewardship over the earth, that the earth will provide. It was kind of like anti-capitalism. I will say that is really beautiful language. Have I not made the earth? Will I not make solitary places to bud and to blossom and to bring forth an abundance? Like that is really beautiful, which is why I'm kind of like torn because I'm like, I, I don't agree with... how this is being used you know what i mean yeah 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 yeah. i don't know if i can like be happy about those verses anymore which kind of makes me sad because they are beautiful yeah what did you find in 117 i found a disabled person yes verses 12 through 15 are all dedicated to oliver granger okay he was a disabled man Let me read a couple things about him, and then we'll kind of go back to these verses and talk about how these verses change when you learn that they're speaking to a disabled person here. So this is something called History of the Church. It's something that apostles and prophets reference sometimes in their talks at General Conference, and you can find the actual books and volumes at byustudies.byu.edu. It says, Oliver Granger was two years a member of the Methodist Church and was a licensed exhorter. On the 8th, September 1813, he married Lydia Dibble. In the year 1827, he, in a great measure, lost his sight by cold and exposure. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he was mostly blind. He was sheriff of Ontario County and colonel of the militia. He received the gospel on reading the Book of Mormon, which he provincially obtained and was baptized in Wayne County and ordained an elder by Brigham and Joseph Young. In 1833, he moved to Kirtland and took a mission to the east with Elder Samuel Newcomb, returned and was ordained to a high priest, took another mission in the spring of 1836 to New York with John P. Green. When the church left Kirtland, he was appointed to settle the church's business. In 1838, taking his family, he went 70 miles into Missouri and was driven back by the mob. 
In the spring of 1839, he went to Nauvoo. In 1840, removed to Kirtland with his family, where he remained until his death. He was a man of good business qualifications, but had been for many years nearly blind. His funeral was attended by a vast concourse of people from neighboring towns, although there were but few saints in the county. Wow. Oh my gosh, I found the story and okay. I have no words after reading this. This was written after Oliver Granger recounted to his daughter about a heavenly visitation that he had, which led him to join the church. Sarah Granger Kimball, Oliver Granger's daughter, wrote, My father, Oliver Granger, had an interesting experience in connection with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. He obtained the Book of Mormon a few months after its publication while in the city of New York. He had a heavenly visitation. My father was told by a personage who said his name was Moroni, that the Book of Mormon, about which his mind was exercised, was a true record of great worth, and Moroni instructed him, my father, to testify of its truth, that he should hereafter be ordained to preach the everlasting gospel to the children of men. Moroni instructed my father to kneel and pray. Moroni and another personage knelt beside him by his bedside. Wow. Moroni repeated words and instructed my father to repeat them after him. Moroni told my father that he might ask for what he most desired and it would be granted. He asked for an evidence by which he might know when he was approved of God. The evidence or sign was given and remained with him until his dying hour, being more particularly manifest when engaged in prayer and meditation. I love the memory of my father. He died in Kirtland, Ohio, August 1843, aged 47. Wow. That's really cool. Oh, my gosh. Like, he prayed with Angel Moroni, and Angel Moroni asked him what he most wanted. And guess what? He didn't ask to be healed mm. from being blind. He asked to have evidence to know that he was approved of God. And I, I found it really interesting. I actually was talking to my aunt a couple of days ago, mm -hmm. and she doesn't listen to our podcast, but she knows I'm doing it. And she said, like, super cool that you're trying to pull out stories of disability from church history. Mm -hmm. Have you heard this story? And she told me the story about Joseph. I haven't looked up the story, so I can't really share details, but she told me a story about how one time Joseph was in a crowded room and there was a disabled person in the room and he walked across the room and healed the person and then walked away and, and the person didn't say anything or <sighs> ask for it. Like he just did it. And in my heart, I'm like, okay, maybe Joseph could perceive the desire of the person being healed. Like, hopefully that was the case instead of him just randomly healing the person. What we do know here is that Oliver Granger was really close with Joseph. Mm -hmm. Oliver served on the Kirtland High Council. He helped build the Kirtland Temple, and Joseph asked him to stay behind when all the saints left. So Oliver was in charge of settling all the church's debts mm. in Kirtland. And Joseph never healed him. And we see here, it wasn't his greatest desire. His greatest desire was to know where he stood before God. And that was granted to him. It's interesting how the tone of the stories changes when we're the ones looking for them and finding them versus like able-bodied and neurotypical family members. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. I, uh, I'm really happy that you found that story and showed yet another like disabled person acting on their own, you know, like, 
Yeah. Like that that he's the agent of his own story, which is kind of like what I was talking about in my review of Elder Suarez general conference yeah. talk, which actually the girl in that story, she was born with a cleft palate and it caused her lots of health problems and then I think she had surgeries and then she went on to like help other people and counsel like parents of kids who had cleft palates. That's why I had like such mixed feelings about that story because I was like that's like the first time I've heard in conference like a disabled person or someone who had a health difficulty being like the agent in their own story, you know, even yeah. though I had mixed feelings about how that story ended. But like, yeah, I, I love that we're finding these stories. <laughs> that's my point. Yeah. And Oliver Granger, just a little bit more about him. There was a letter of recommendation to Oliver Granger written by the First Presidency. Oh, and I found this also in History of the Church. It says, Joseph Smith Jr., Sidney Rigdon, and Hiram Smith, presiding elders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, do hereby certify and solemnly declare unto all the saints scattered abroad and send unto them greeting that we have always found President Oliver Granger to be a man of most strict integrity and moral virtue, and in fine, to be a man of God. We have had long experience and acquaintance with Brother Granger. We have entrusted vast business concerns to him, which have been managed skillfully to support our character and interest as well as that of the church. We earnestly solicit the saints scattered abroad to strengthen his hand with all their might and to put such means into his hands as shall enable him to accomplish lawful designs and purposes and that they entrust him with monies, lands, chattels, and goods to assist him in his work and it shall redound greatly to the interest and welfare peace and satisfaction of my saints saith the lord i will lift up my servant oliver and beget him for a great name on the earth and among my people because of the integrity of his soul therefore let all my saints abound unto him with all liberality and long suffering and it shall be a blessing on their heads that is really cool like especially the fact that he was disabled I wish we had people like that in our, like, general authorities. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we do sometimes when they get, like, super old. But, like, I feel like this just shows that we can have disability representation in, like, the higher ups of the church, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's cool that they recognize that he was competent and he had a lot of, like, good to offer the church and the world. And he happened to be disabled. Yeah, and... Even, um, so Oliver Granger, he's even been mentioned in modern day conference talks. Oh, wow. He was mentioned in 2004 by Boyd K. Packer. Hmm. It says, there is a message for Latter-day Saints in a seldom quoted revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith in 1838, quote, I remember my servant Oliver Granger. Behold, verily I say unto him that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation forever and ever, saith the Lord. And that's referencing Doctrine and Covenants 117.12. Boyd K. Packer goes on, 
Oliver Granger was a very ordinary man. He was mostly blind, having lost his sight by cold and exposure. The First Presidency described him as a man of the most strict integrity and moral virtue, and in fine, to be a man of God. When the saints were driven from Kirtland, Ohio, in a scene that would be repeated in Independence, Far West, in Nauvoo, Oliver was left behind to sell their properties for what little he could. There was not much chance that he could succeed, and really, he did not succeed. But the Lord said, Let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency of my church, saith the Lord, and when he falls, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. And we're going to go back to that scripture in a moment. What, Boyd K. Packer continues, did Oliver Granger do that his name should be held in sacred remembrance? Nothing much, really. It was not so much what he did as what he was. The Lord did not expect Oliver to be perfect, perhaps not even succeed. We cannot always expect to succeed, but we should try the best we can. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their hearts. DNC 137.9. Boyd K. Packer goes on to talk about like weakness and how the Lord calls the weak and that Oliver Granger was not a great man in terms of the world, but the Lord remembers Oliver Granger forever and ever, and that we cannot underestimate the power of faith in the ordinary Latter-day Saints. And this is like, this is probably really sad to say, but one thing that I just loved in this was that Oliver was disabled, but he was called ordinary, yeah. Instead of just called like special. Mm, yeah, like I mean it talks about weakness, but it talks about it in in broad terms, meaning like all the people that the Lord calls are weak and you know, we mm-hmm. have the opportunity to like be strengthened through when we follow the Lord whatever. It doesn't like talk about Oliver Granger as less than it just calls him ordinary and then it's yeah. a call to all saints that like even if you feel like you're ordinary, don't underestimate the power of faith. And, you know, I thought that that was really cool. It's like anti-inspiration porn. Yeah, it's kind like of. the good Maybe version of inspiration. Maybe that's why I was so affected by it. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm like, I was just anticipating that it's going to turn into this big thing and it didn't. It's mm-hmm. like, it's part of his story. But then Joseph trusted him. The Lord trusted him. And it says here that he wasn't successful in like fixing all the debts of the church. But we read that... He performed the assignment that the church gave him well enough that one of his creditors wrote, quote, Oliver Granger's management in the arrangement of the unfinished business of people that moved to far west in redeeming their pledges and thereby sustaining their integrity has entitled him to my highest esteem. So even though he didn't get a lot of money out of the work he did, mm-hmm. he left a legacy of integrity for the saints who left yeah. the area when people thought that they were just abandoning their debts and like screwing people over pretty much, you know? Mm -hmm. So let me go back to the actual scriptures that it mentions him in section 117. It's verses 12 through 15. I want you to ask yourself, how does knowing that this man was disabled change how we read these verses Mm -hmm. and how we apply them? So it says, And again, I say unto you, I remember my servant, Oliver Granger. Behold, verily, I say unto him that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation forever and ever. 
Therefore, let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency of my church, saith the Lord, and when he falls, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. Therefore, let him come up hither speedily unto the land of Zion, and in due time he shall be made a merchant unto my name, saith the Lord, for the benefit of my people." Therefore let no man despise my servant Oliver Granger, but let the blessings of my people be on him forever and ever. What do you think about that section in a disability lens, Serena? I like that it says, let no man despise him, because I feel like that's something that happens a lot with disabled people or neurodivergent people. Like we're either put on this pedestal but not really listened to, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or they hate us and we're evil and we've strayed. Yeah, yeah. So I like that this is saying don't despise him. Also, I don't know how I feel about like when he falls, he shall rise again. I'm like, I don't get why you had to include that metaphor. But anyway. Yeah, I actually I really like that part. I think that it's not a perfect metaphor, but Mm -hmm. the concept is really, really important for disabled people because in the world's perception or society's perception, we're constantly failing. We are not useful for capitalism. We are burdens. It's like we only exist because people help us. But this is saying when he falls, he shall rise again. Like we're going to keep coming back. We're going to be here forever. You can't get rid of us, no matter how much your eugenics wants yeah. you to. And we're going to keep fighting for our place in this world because we have a rightful place, like when it talks about Zion. The part right after that, it says, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase. Wow, that's super relatable as a disabled person too. Like our sacrifices aren't seen as much mm. as well in how society perceives them. But it's more about our increase than our sacrifice at times. Like we have just as much ability to grow spiritually as other people. Serena and I believe that progress period is not linear. Yes. Um, And our progress as disabled people, it's going to (laughs) be all over the place. It'll Mm -hmm. be, it'll look like a lot of different things at different times, but we still have the ability to grow into ourselves and find our place in the world and find joy in that and peace and power in that our own places where we can find increase is a lot of times more important than our ability to sacrifice according to how other people are able or willing to sacrifice that was really beautiful katie thank you for turning that into like a positive verse for me i appreciate that speaking of sacrifice and increase Can we talk about tithing now? (laughs) Yeah. Section 119 is literally just why we have tithing, right? So this is when they switched from the law of consecration to the law of tithing. Although, like, at the beginning it says, like, give your surplus and then give tithing. So it's, like, kind of like a transition. I found this question on a forum. This is a disabled person on Third Hour, which is a forum for Latter-day Saints, asking for advice on what to do about their tithing situation. And they say, I was recently baptized in my ward and I have received conflicting advice on tithing. I am on SSDI, so that's federal disability benefits. My total income for the month is under $900. I don't get Medicaid, just Medicare. I have a disorder called CIDP, which is chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy. Woo! 
Serena's sight reading these things. <laughs> he continues, I have to see a neurologist twice a month, a nerve and pain specialist once a month, and my regular doctor once a month for my condition and diabetes. Each specialist is $75 out of pocket for each visit and $25 for my regular doctor. My meds right now are $107 a month with fentanyl patches and muscle relaxers being added next month, which will add almost $90 a month to my bill. Right now, to be able to cover my bills, I only can use my food stamps to get my food. My diet is now less than a 1,000 calories a day. I am hmm. married, but my wife is in school to get an accounting degree and cannot work due to classes, so mine is the only income for the next three years, and we still have to find money for when she has to switch to a four-year school, two years at community, and a two- to four-year school to finish. We have been told over and over we need to tithe the full 10%. I have been told not to worry and just do it, even if it means I don't have the money to get my meds or see my doctor. Quote, God will provide, right? The day after we were baptized, the bishop informed us that there was no form of assistance the ward could provide, even though we never asked for assistance. Hmm. So what should I do? If I pay tithing, my wife will have to leave school, or I go without meds, or I lose my apartment and go homeless. If I go without meds, I will die. My health doesn't allow for that. I am bedridden three weeks out of each month on average, so me finding work is not an option. My wife, who is 20 years younger, leaving school is not an option. Being homeless will never be an option, and with no help from the ward, I'm at a loss with what to do. I have offered to do some type of work for the ward, but the bishop said that's not an option. In a ward where 10% of the people are current with their tithing, while being able-bodied and working white-collar jobs, almost everyone has a new car and owns their home, it feels as though we are being singled out. Some members have stated that tithing would make us dependent on church welfare, and therefore we should be exempt. This is Serena speaking. I feel like that's an interesting take on it. <laughs> like, okay, I feel like you're getting to where I would get to, except using like a really roundabout way. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'll continue. And therefore, we should be exempt while ward leaders and elders are telling us to pay, even if that means giving up my meds. After all my bills are paid, that is just rent, electric, meds, doctors, and internet due to my wife having three online courses and a bus pass so I can get to appointments, I have less than $20 left of my check. 10% of my income is $87. So we've already cut our diet to around 1,000 calories a day. Being diabetic, I'm supposed to have 1,900 or more a day. Should I end my wife's future and pull her out of school, stop taking my meds or seeing my doctor, or become homeless to pay the monies owed for tithing? Every visit we receive at our apartment from the missionaries, um, nothing was discussed except tithing. Since we were baptized, the only thing the bishop has discussed with us is tithing. The past five Sundays, the main subject is tithing and food offerings. But if there is no food help or welfare assistance in the ward, why is it still being collected? Is my death what is needed to show my faith? Or ending my wife's future and the ability to pay more than the $87 they would receive now in a few years? Hmm. Is this how the church is supposed to function? Or is this just the ward I'm stuck with? My ward is a 30-minute drive from us, even though we have a ward 10 minutes from us. So instead of catching a bus, we have to beg rides from people set up by the missionaries so we have come to expect a 30-minute lecture on tithing. I am being shamed on a weekly basis for having a disability and not having income to pay the full tithing. What are my options? Oh my gosh, this is heart-wrenching. It is heart-wrenching. Like, how do I say this? This is not just one isolated post. This is the initial post in this thread. And then there are three whole, like, internet pages of responses to this person of just people going back and forth and telling them that they need to pay their tithing. Oh. 
Oh, the, mm, it's it's really bad. It's really bad. The very first response, they said, first of all, stop comparing yourself to others. Stop worrying about whether or how others are sinning. This can only harm you and never help. Their choices are theirs and they will answer for them. Your choices are yours and you will answer for them. So just let it go. You cannot change it. So don't let it change you. Gosh, that's so gaslighty. The concept of like comparison, it's like a culture thing in our church. So mm-hmm. just like to pretend like it doesn't exist. Ugh, that yeah. doesn't really work for disabled people who are being mm-hmm. judged, he said, weekly on this. One of the talks that I reviewed in our Instagram stories, oh, this was Elder Suarez talk that said, don't focus on imperfections and sins of others. You focus on yourself, which is a good mindset if you are the one with privilege. You know, this is exactly what I was afraid of is like people using that principle to silence people who are marginalized who have legitimate complaints. Yeah. Ugh. And then in response to the initial person saying that we have to beg rights from people, Zill responded, choose to be humble rather than ashamed. This sounds like a much larger problem than just whether you, one person, pay tithing. It sounds like this is a ward or stake problem. If that's the case, you should let go of your feelings of being singled out. As is probable, every person who isn't paying a full tithe is feeling the same way. Either way, that feeling is not helping you. Oh my gosh. As if there's not extra barriers. And then in response to the what are my options, Zill said... And everything I write here after, I'm not saying you should or should not pay your tithing. I'm saying you should work to understand the law. Reject the negative feelings you're having now and increase your faith and trust in and love for the Lord. Do this and eventually the Lord will help you reach the right conclusion. If your best does not include paying tithing right now, that's between you and the Lord. Do your best, whatever it is. Be honest with yourself and the Lord. Don't lull yourself into a false sense of complacency. I would recommend you work on changing yourself because that's all that you have the power to change. Try to let go of hard feelings towards others who appear to be better off. Choose to feel humble and grateful rather than ashamed. Study the law of tithing, the word of wisdom, the law of the fast, and the Sabbath. I feel like these are all related in that they promise blessings when we choose to give up a portion of what the Lord has given us. As you study, pray for guidance. At the end of the day, your question is one of faith. Do I trust that the Lord will take care of me when paying my tithing will leave me without the ability to pay for basic necessities myself? You've already done the math and done your best to maximize what you can get from your income. That's good. Now, let go of the math. It can't help you further. And believe at least in the possibility, that's in italics, (laughs) in the possibility that the Lord can do what you cannot. This isn't necessarily something you can come to believe instantly. You may have to work on it for a long time, but I believe you will be blessed in greater abundance if you let go of your fear and embrace the infinite possibilities available to the Lord. That doesn't mean that you have to pay tithing this instant and spend the rest of the month fretting over your lack of money. It means work to change your pattern of thinking and feeling so that you can both change your behavior and receive additional blessings. <sighs> anyway, so that that was that person's response. Um, and then wow. they shared their experience. Like, if I found a request for change in every prayer and then got up and did the best I could to obey, the change was eventually brought about. So someone else responded afterwards and was like, Actually, the answer is not always to pay your tithing. And they went into the legal thing. And he says, technically, it's illegal for a church or any organization to require an individual to pay money to them on subsistence government benefits. I don't think a lot of church leaders, and this is where the white collar middle class recognition comes in, realize this. They cannot tell you that you have to pay tithing on disability insurance benefits. This can be considered defrauding the government in some nations, though there may be some out there that are not like this. That's 
said, in the U.S., there have been workarounds which allow an individual to pay tithing on their disability insurance benefits out of their own free choice if they so desire, if I understand the law correctly. However, they cannot be compelled to do so by a religious organization. This comes more into play if one has a fiduciary. A fiduciary is a as one who would take care or charge of one's benefits if they are unable to do so. In this instance, if a fiduciary decided to pay tithing to the LDS church but neglected your own needs and necessities, it could turn into a very bad legal case against the fiduciary. At the minimum, they would probably be removed as a fiduciary. As it gets worse, you get into criminal charges against the individual who did this act. Taken in this light, if a church official is trying to force or compel one to pay on these payments, they can report that church official. I would would highly suggest that one advises a church official of this first. In this instance, ignorance is normally accepted as an excuse by those who have to make a quick judgment. After that, if they continue to persist, it becomes a different matter. That is why, unless in specific situations, which I didn't know this, this is exactly why leaders are normally not supposed to give specific instructions on what or how an individual is to tithe. They can relay information regarding tithing and the commandment, but they cannot start specifying what being a full tithe payer has to involve in many situations. They cannot say you must pay gross or net. You need to do this or that. They can give an opinion. They say that they think you should pay tithing and disability benefits, but they cannot say that you have to do this. And if they realize that they cannot compel you, they could even say they think you'd be fine not paying tithing on your disability insurance or benefits or social security retirement, but they cannot compel you to pay. Normally, instead of getting into the nitty gritty, I imagine most bishops will try to avoid touching this and instead just state the commandment and say, we believe in paying tithing, which is 10% of one's increase. Oh, there are others who may try to enforce that one needs to pay disability insurance benefits or any government benefits, pay tithing on that in order to get a temple recommend or otherwise. This is a very risky and thin line. Thus far, the governments have not cracked down on these practices, but if the government ever decided to do so, it could be a very thin line they're walking, whether they're doing something illegal. But then this guy Vort, mm, maybe it's a woman, On I'll just say them, but their name is Vort and their like little subtitle is like Breaker of Chains and Mother of Dragons. <laughs> okay. And they responded to Johnson Jones, who gave all that legal stuff and said, in what country is it illegal? I'm no lawyer, but I'm confident that such is not the case in the U.S. Religious organizations here can mandate any financial stipulation from their worshipers they want. It's called freedom of religion. Like it literally, Vort literally what? put that That's in not quotes. What freedom of religion is. <laughs> if a person pays those funds wrongly from government funds, the wrongdoing is the individuals, not the churches. Like, ah! oh no. Then Johnson Jones responded, "Uh, it is the case," and they just like. Went into more legal stuff. And then Vort ignored them and, like, responding to Zill, that first person who responded, who was like, forget everything and control your feelings, you know? And Vort responded and said, Zill, that's a great answer. Seriously, just great. You should consider working for an advice column. Like, ask Granny or something. <laughs> what? And then Vort said, pay tithing or I won't give you a temple recommend. Not illegal. Pay tithing or I'll beat you up. Illegal. This has nothing to do with different churches' requirements and everything to do with forcibly extorting money from someone. Don't confuse the latter issue by trying to dress it up as the former. <sighs> okay, so many wrong things here. They get into this and then Cosmos, who was the initial poster, responded and said, the first sign that I had an autoimmune disorder is when I woke up paralyzed for three years. It is one of the first symptoms of GBS. 
CIDP, which I have now, is the chronic form of GBS. My symptoms include nerve pain. The specialist equates it to being a burn victim with burns on 90% of the body, muscle weakness, Mm. muscle spasms that are extreme enough to fracture bones, fatigue, heart Mm. murmur, breathing problems, and inability to swallow, and a constellation of other minor problems. Mm. And then they quoted what someone else said and said, but I submit that among other things, it is supposed to induce you to reconsider plans, decisions, and habits you've already made that may be financially suboptimal. And they say sarcastically, yes, I would reconsider having this disorder, but that disorder is out of my hands. My habit of having my body lock up for days at a time is very inconvenient. My choking on my own saliva and food or having to be put on a respirator isn't much fun either. I guess I should have planned better in my 20s for an extremely rare disorder to strike me. I guess looking at it that way, not planning better, have made my choices financially suboptimal. Mm -hmm. And then everybody's like, oh, we're not trying to judge you. We're trying to be here for you. And they just keep arguing and arguing and arguing. But like, this is the pattern that we have here with A, it starts off with not having education for the bishops that disabled people are not A, legally supposed to pay tithing on their like disability benefits because that can cause lawsuits. And B, Mm -hmm. how can you think it would be better for this person to pay tithing and die. Ugh. I'm just so mad about this whole thing. And like Vort saying, oh, well, no one's like extorting you to pay tithing. You just like can't enter the temple. Like the temple is supposed to be eternal salvation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, what do you believe the temple is, Vort? Like, why do you think it's so important? Why do we have missionaries? Why do we do work for the dead, you know? Oh, because we believe that the ordinances are important, that they're essential for salvation, that they tie families together. Like, you don't think that disabled people want to be with their families in the next life? Do you think that they don't deserve to be with their families in the next life unless they sacrifice their current life? I'm so mad about this. Anyway. Wow. Yeah, that's a mess. So I'm pulling this from ssa.gov. It's a government site about social security. It says you can only use money in a dedicated amount for the following expenses, medical treatment, education, or job skills training, personal needs related to disability, such as therapy, rehabilitation, special equipment, and housing modifications. And then there's a website The website's called specialneedsanswers.com. Not a great website title, but it looks like it's a really pretty big website with questions and answers for disabled people. This website says if an SSI recipient gifts money, they could lose up to three years of SSI eligibility. And then they go into what the rules are if you gift money rather than using it for yourself. So yeah, it looks like It's not a good idea to pay tithing if you have SSI. I think right now it's something that you'd talk to your bishop or stake president about, but of course we'll get a lot of different answers depending on where you are in the world when you have that conversation, what area you're in and what they know and all these things. So it's definitely a sticky situation, obviously in the thread you read, very sticky Like, that's not even what I'm mad about, you know? What I'm mad about is the fact that these people are gaslighting this person who just joined the church and just treating them like shit, you know? And just being like, well, you just need to have more faith. Um, You need to control your emotions. You need to focus on the principle of tithing. Like, you realize, people, how much immense privilege you have? Like, if you were in that person's place, do you really think that you would still pay tithing? Like, 
It's only because you're able-bodied and you don't have to worry about these health problems and you have like a steady income and a house and, and a car that you're not thinking about these things. This disabled person is thinking about a hundred different factors that you don't have to worry about. It may be simple for you, but it's not simple for them. You know, this is yet another way that disabled people are being excluded because yeah. if they cannot pay tithing, they cannot enter the temple. So like we've talked about a little bit about like service dogs in the temple or like keeping the word of wisdom and having a temple recommend. But here's another instance where disability can prevent you from entering the temple and where the church is excluding people who are disabled. The fact of the matter is that it does exist and we need to work to raise attention to it and to include disabled people. Like honestly, I think the whole system of temple recommends needs to be revamped and reconsidered. Thank you everyone for listening and reading and supporting us while we do our best to support you and share these stories. Please follow us on Instagram at holyhuman. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. We actually have a new Facebook group started by one of our followers because the old Facebook group for disability specialists was full of ableist rhetoric and was really just atrocious, inspiration porny, and like honestly like traumatic for both Katie and I. One of our followers started a new Facebook group called Disability Education Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. Please join that group and more people we can get in there the more we can combat ableism on Facebook and of course we know that that's like mostly populated by older members of the church at this point so like these are the people who are in charge of the church you know they're not as much on Instagram and TikTok send us an email at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to be involved and thank you to Mativ for our intro and outro music we accessed the song through freesound.org Thank you.
which in Salem, Massachusetts, is the Namkieg people, which in Salem, where this revelation speaks of, uh, it's the Namkieg tribe. <laughs> 